is Stigma, where we talk with leaders from many industries about how mental health and addiction have impacted their lives. Many people suffer silently from mental illness, addiction, depression, anxiety, and trauma. They never seek help because of stigma. In this podcast, host Stephen Hayes and his guests share their stories of recovery in order to encourage others to do the same. Here's Stephen. Welcome back to the Stigma Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dan Sider. Dan is someone that I was introduced to this year uh, by someone I met during rehab. And when I first connected with Dan, we discovered that we have this shared experience in dealing with bipolar disorder. And in our early conversations, Dan would tell me about his experiences dealing with it, how he managed his mood, how he tracked his mood, how he took certain medications and I really learned a lot from him as a friend and as a, really a mentor, a peer mentor in, in dealing with this. And he has since then introduced me to a, a lot of people in the mental health startup community. And he is also the CEO and founder of a startup in that community called Misu, which is the first automated mood tracker that's ever been built. And we're going to get into that in a few minutes. But you can connect with Dan on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. And on his company's website, all of that will be linked for you in the show notes. But without further ado, Dan, thank you for coming on. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure. Thank you for putting this podcast together and spreading more awareness about mental health. Right on. Yeah, it's the it's the least I honestly the least I can do. You know, when we first met, I learned a lot about mental health and a lot about surviving with bipolar and taking lithium and I learned a lot of that from you and our, we had weekly conversations where we would, we would talk about these things. And I was hoping that you could share a little bit of your journey living with bipolar uh, with, with us today. Yeah, I'm happy to. It's been a, quite a long journey. I was diagnosed eight years ago and I was in my second year of college. I knew nothing about mental health. I was so emotionally unaware. I could barely even tell like what emotions I was feeling. I probably had a very small uh, or short vocabulary to describe my emotional states and with very low granularity. The story could go on for hours, but I, I, I think I'll, I'll give the spark notes and we can jump into any parts that, that call to you. Great. Coming up to this, I was starting to get really excited, thinking a lot about the future. I was spending 16-hour days on campus. I was in my second year of college in Canada, and there was more like conflict that was happening with my girlfriend at the time, who I thought was going to be my forever after. And then roughly right around the day after things, or the day before things had ended with her, I didn't sleep at all that night. I started asking myself, what does a utopian world look like and what's stopping us from getting there? And I was very obsessed with this idea. When things ended with her the next day, I didn't sleep for two more days. And I was trying to think about all these very grand ideas about how we could fix a lot of the world's problems. Fortunately, one of my friends contacted my uh, my parents and my mom's a psychiatrist, so she knew instantly. And my friend had a hunch because he had a, another friend who had a schizophrenic episode, and the symptoms can look similar, the sense of uh, it, uh, on a number of fronts. And 
my mom came up. They did a lot of um, emotional and social jujitsuing to get me to come back home. The next day, they were very did a great job in bringing me to the hospital and uh, where I received my diagnosis. Uh, and I stayed in there for a whole month. And that is when my journey with mental health began. Yeah, that sounds like it was quite the experience. For the for your loved ones that were trying to help you, how did they know where to take you? I mean, I guess your mom was a psychiatrist, but how would someone who wasn't a psychiatrist know where to take someone? Did the, you just got, did you guys just go to the like regular doctor, regular emergency room? They did bring me to the regular emergency room. Uh, I know at least in Canada that's where people can receive a psychiatric diagnosis and be held in there was a psych ward there so they could keep me there um, they determined it was best for me to be in the psych ward uh, so I did I did stay there it's it's interesting like we were talking about this now and I just noticed in the back of my head thinking like I, I am kind of cautious about how much information I do share to what detail very publicly. And yeah, it's, it is sad that there isn't this sense of safety that we can communicate with full transparency what went on and the struggles that we did go through. That, that was one of the most difficult times of my life. And I am really excited to be here today talking about this and about this entire space. But I do know even as someone who is very public and has talked about this in many places, that that caution is still there. Why is that? What's what what causes that hesitation? I think for me, it's it it doesn't have to do anymore with romantic fronts because I feel incredibly stable. It doesn't necessarily have to do with professional fronts because if there's a workforce that um, is not willing to accept people who are promoting positive mental health and who have been through struggles and have found stability, then those aren't places that I want to work or even promote, like uh, endorse with my employment. Um, it's, it, I, I'm happy to share more privately. Uh, and, and one day I would be happy to share more publicly about the, the reason that is holding me back. Got it. No, I understand that. And what do you do to sort of manage your condition, if you want to call it that, to manage your bipolar from being proactive or reactive to it? How does it make you feel every day? Are there meds that you take? What do you do to kind of manage it? There's a whole slew of things. For one, I love lithium. Lithium is... A, there, I go on this little rant about lithium, so, so I'll share it over here. Um, one, it's the third element on the periodic table. It's been around for hundreds of millions of years, much longer than we have. It's been the longest lasting mood stabilizer on the market. We even, there's this, I've, I, there's this story, I don't know whether it is true or not, um, but it definitely sounds possible <laughs> that there was a, a lithium mine. Uh, well, that, that's the punchline. Um, <laughs> they, there was a, a, a little town that noticed at one point in time that some researcher was looking back and they were saying, why are our suicide rates lower? Why are our, why are crime rates lower? Why are all these like really important metrics of a healthy society lower um, and in a healthier place? And they kept looking around and they finally realized that there was a lithium mine 
that was being mined during those couple of years when those metrics were in a great place and that they looked into the water supplies to verify that the, the lithium levels in the water supplies were higher during those years. And there are a number of instances of towns throughout America and the rest of the world that do have naturally higher lithium levels and statistically have lower rates of suicide, of domestic abuse, of um, mental health instances per capita. This is a tool that has been around for hundreds of years that we've been using to manage our emotional health. And it's really unfortunate that the incentives aren't aligned for pharma companies because they can't patent this. So it's not promoted. It's not marketed. We're trying out these whole other sets of drugs. Um, and there's very minimal research that goes into what is lithium effective for. We haven't, I don't believe that we've done really effective research on is lithium effective for anxiety? Is it effective for depression? We've primarily looked at it for managing people with mania and depression related to mania so that that that's a a bit of that that covers most of the rant on lithium and lithium for me it helps me manage um, when i'm more anxious when i'm more depressed when i'm more manic and when i'm kind of act a little bit uh, more careless or carefree and those four dimensions are kind of what i experience as someone who's received a bipolar dis, uh, diagnosis I experience those to a larger degree. So when I notice myself experiencing more anxiety or uh, more elevated moods or more depressed moods, I'll increase my dose of lithium. I have a baseline dose of 900 milligrams a day, which is on the lower end, but I think I do a number of other things that help me balance it out. And to answer, I think that goes to answering your question. Oh, that's awesome. What else do yeah, that's that's such a great answer. It's so informative. And I think that's exactly what I think people will want to understand about bipolar. So thank you for sharing that. And one of the things you mentioned is awareness of your mood states. And I'm curious, you know, what do you do or how did you become more aware of your mood states? Because I know for me, even after coming home from rehab and getting that psychoeducation and starting to take meds, I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm still a novice at being aware of how my mood state's changing. Yeah, this this has been a long journey of mine, and I, it seems like a lifelong journey for me. I, My mom and my other psychiatrists recommended that I track my mood. But for the first year or so, I was like, I'm not going to do that. Like Using this piece of paper, what benefits that going to have on me? I'm just logging this down on a piece of paper. I know how I feel. I was I, I was kind of ignorant to the upside that it could have. And I think a lot of the population is as well. And for me, when I saw that we started having these fit, fitness trackers coming out and they were becoming more popular, and when my parents and psychiatrists were saying, Dan, track your mood, it's really useful for you. I think the big reason why I wasn't doing it uh, was largely because I was lazy. So I figured, hey, one day we're going to have tools that can po- that can automatically track our, our mental health. And that's going to unlock a whole set of new kinds of innovations that promote positive mental health in an effortless way. So I said, I want to give back to the mental health community. This is how I want to do it. On an upside, I'm going to be helping myself. So I started teaching myself how to code. I built myself a manual mood tracker. 
and went on this journey. It's now been a hand, like four years now where I've been searching for way, a way to automatically track my mental health. And this has resulted in me tracking my mood every day, almost every day for those four years. I've done it manually over a thousand times. Cumulatively, I've tracked my mood over a hundred thousand times and which is stored on a database somewhere. And I have learned a lot about my emotional state throughout, throughout that time. And I'm still learning. My life changes over time and my behaviors change and I develop more somatic awareness. Uh, there's, there's a lot that goes into this. Uh, but I, I definitely recommend people who want to become more emotionally aware and want to develop more emotional stability to track their mood, even if it's just in their own head. That's really great insight. And, you know, you mentioned it's been a lifelong journey in a way. And I, I feel like a journey like that shouldn't be something that's done alone. And kind of curious, you know, do you, what kind of support do you have for dealing with your mental health? Do you see doctors, therapists? Do you go to any kind of group sessions? Is there any kind of support community out there for people with bipolar like there is for alcoholics and drug addicts? The support that I've had has changed over time. And it's ranged from one of the most useful things for me after my episode was joining a support group. Uh, of other people who dealt with severe mental health challenges. Uh, it was part of my college, and it was so normalizing for me. I came out of the psych ward, and I knew very little. I, I barely understood what was going on. I was so heavily drugged up on medications. I was moving around so slowly and talking so slowly like a zombie that some people thought I was stoned or drugged up because of how heavily sedated I was. And oh, um, being part of a community of people who are going through the same thing or went through the same thing, it was incredibly normalizing. It felt like I had, it. yeah, it gave me the sense of community. Um, that, that was one. I think having my parents, I, I'm very fortunate to have parents that said to me, Dan, we don't care how much money you make. We don't care if it takes you a long time to finish up college. We don't care if you even take time off. We want your health to be in a good place. And that what we that's what we care about most. And that was actually helped me come back and take an additional semester off of college when I was in a really depressed state. And I called my parents or I sent them a message and I asked, can you pick me up? That was one of my hardest times, and I was very fortunate that they were able to come and pick me up. They were an hour away. Two hours after that message, they had picked me up and just drove back in almost complete silence. Um, and then they nurtured me through my most depressed state. Um, I I think today, like five, six, uh, almost seven, eight years later, I... Right now, a lot of my care comes from the habits that I keep up. I go to the gym frequently. I do regular exercise. I bike. I have found hobbies that bring me joy. I host community events, so I bring a bunch of people together. I have peers like you that I can hop on a call and talk about challenges that are going on. Um, the pure one-on-one -on -one sessions, at one point, I had three of those going on a week, so it's almost like I had therapy. Uh, non-professional therapy 
from really great people who can understand me and um, be supportive. And I can also provide that support. There's, and, and just generally, one of the things that I actually, I think very few people do is filter their friends um, based on who's supportive for their mental health. That's something that I did for quite some time. And like, is this person, will bringing this person to my life improve my overall emotional health? And doing that for a while managed to help surround me with people who are incredibly emotionally aware and sometimes more emotionally aware than I am. And that, that was also a big, a big help. This, I, I could probably go on for more, but I think just pausing it here for now is a, enough for uh, people to chew on. That was really helpful. And one more kind of question along those lines, if you don't mind, is it sounds like you've found a really great support network for yourself and it's encouraged you and helped you and you've opened up and you've, I think sharing your story you know, with me has been helpful. I think sharing your story with others will continue to be, you'll help other people. And, you know, what is it that allows you to open up? And I, I think this is kind of an interesting question because you, there was a moment earlier in the conversation where you withheld a couple of thoughts and, but you're also very open at the same time. So what is it that allows you to be open and what has to happen so that more people will open up and share their, their stories with, with the broader public? Well, I, I think for one, I, I'd like to see a world where most of developed nations have closer instances of people who struggle with mental health as, uh, as this little town in Papua New Guinea who has a two, less than, I think it's 0.2% of their population struggle with mental health challenges, which is 200 times less than America. And I think the degree at which they struggle is also significantly less. That is a completely different point but what what is it that has to change i think right now we live in a world where like we where money and value creation is almost the top like money value creation having very indulgent experiences traveling all these things are the most prioritized concepts in this in our in um, at least American society. And we don't have a set of incentives that prioritize individuals, that prioritize companies, that prioritize governments to really optimize for emotional health. And I don't think it's going to be until we have those kinds of high-level incentives where we'll see this change start happening at a very large scale. You know, one thing that you and I have talked about in the past, I think would resonate with where what you just said is there's not really effective policy in place to facilitate that kind of change and that kind of public output, if you will. So what, what has to happen or what's going on at the policy level that puts us in this place and what has to change and who can change it? Yeah, this, this is a, a it's a great question. I think the political environment right now is is very ripe to start seeing wellness policy come into place. There are executives like Tim Cook who are saying, we didn't intend for these devices to become really addictive. We're going to keep innovating in this space to help these pieces of technology actually improve people's lives. Uh, paraphrasing a bit there, also Zuckerberg, they, he said he welcomes regulation for content, um, content that is 
harming society. They've even done research that they say the way that the majority of people use Facebook, the way passive scrolling it usually makes people, uh, puts them in a worse mental health space, like becoming more depressed or more anxious, more self-critical. There are the majority of the major tech platforms are, um, or at least a good handful of them. I think it's Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, uh, Google's operating system and Apple have and are innovating in the space of improving people's digital health. Now, on the policy front, we're seeing politicians, we're seeing congressmen on both sides, we're seeing presidential candidates that are pushing forward policy that starts regulating these tech companies to have a better impact on society. So, and, and then consumers, of course, they're they're not happy with this. Uh, we have people pouring off of Facebook because they're starting to realize it's not good for our health. But then they go from one platform to another. So this this seems very similar to what happened in the early days of when tobacco regulation started to come into place. There were a bunch of researchers that said, "Hey, I think I think tobacco is uh, is bad for us." They did a bunch of research. Turned out. Smoking was harmful for our health. Gathered a bunch of community members together and started propagating this idea forward. It took quite some time, but eventually the Surgeon General of America said, "Yeah, smoking's bad for us," uh, and this propagated a lot of policy change. One of them being there was a two hundred billion dollar fine made to the tobacco industry, and because they were harming our health and they were costing our society a lot. Turns out, mental health is costing our society north of two hundred billion a year just in healthcare costs, and then an estimated. Well, these are kind of hard to measure, but it's an estimated two hundred billion dollars lost in productivity in in the workplace. So there's, and and I think that the companies and the products that we use have a responsibility for this. And now that we're starting to see technologies out there, multiple technologies that can measure our mental health and measure how and measure our product usage, we can start learning how are these companies impacting our mental health and bring policy into place because we have a right to our wellness and I want to see companies held accountable to this. So we, you and I actually are, are uh, on a fireside chat in about a month from now talking about this. And we're going to be bringing in some uh, local politicians and eventually some congressmen as this community evolves. It's probably going to take some time, but it's a, um, a movement definitely worth investing in. So you mentioned mood tracking, and I know, I know that's what Misu, which is your business, does. Can you tell me a little bit about what Misu does? How, what is automated mood tracking? And how does how do, how can someone anticipate interacting with an automatic mood tracker? Yeah, so Miso's like a Fitbit for your emotional health that requires no hardware at all. We analyze emotional state through the webcam on your computer, and all photos are deleted instantly. And this keeps tabs as this we've developed a machine learning model that can detect emotional state off of your resting face. And it just so happens that a lot of us are using our computers for many hours throughout the day and our emotional state, both small changes throughout the day and our overall state um, is expressed quite accurately on our face. So what does this look like? Well, for me, well, 
I now, I, I have a little bar on the top of my computer that shows me my computer health. So my CPU usage, my battery life. And now I have an initial bar, another bar up there that lets me know about my emotional health and how it's changing over time. And this really is a way, it requires no input from me, but it promotes me to be more aware for how am I feeling throughout the day. And over time, what I'm really excited about is not just having a mirror to say, here's how I feel, but learning how do the apps and websites that I use impact my well-being, which is uh, one avenue to look at. And kind of where this could go later on is being able to look at any piece of content online or help recommend me to do things that are great for my mental health that I haven't even come across yet because I'm not a machine learning model that's crawling the internet, looking at thousands of possible things and evaluating their impact on my long-term well-being. That's really interesting. And it brings up a thought for me around the data that comes from that. So let's assume that you're able to you know, deal with all of the privacy stuff and get people comfortable, get the government okay with what you're tracking. If, if it seems to me, just from what I'm reading about the way this has been done with health, healthcare, traditional healthcare data, it seems to me like there's a lot of public good that could come from having a data set that's empirically gathered around people's mood, when it changes and why and how it changes. Is that how you see it? Or what do you, what do you think can be done with the, the, the output data set from what, what you're doing? Yeah, I, we just talked about the wellness policy. And so what we can do with aggregating this data, we can now make measurements to say, how is Facebook impacting our well-being? How is Twitter impacting all of America's well-being? And this data, as we do more research on it and start learning, well, uh, this kind of impact of a certain product, the way we measure it, is related to, is a contributing factor to depression with this degree. And then we can then extrapolate those costs or those into costs through the healthcare system. And with that, it makes it a lot easier to go and put measure or put policy into place. So one, this can help with policy. And then two, I'm also really excited about this idea of a metric-backed securities market, which interestingly enough came up during my manic episode. And I landed up writing my economics undergrad thesis on it. And it's essentially a derivatives market which uh, collects payouts to companies for improving certain metrics. These metrics could be impact on consumers' mental health. I like that. I like that. So where can people find Misu? How do you, can they use it now? Is it, is it launched? Is it available? Give me the kind of the lay of the land on, on timing. Yeah. So we, uh, we just rolled out our first beta group to about a hundred people. And we're super happy with the way the response to it. We're getting a ton of messages saying that people are really surprised how accurate this product is. And we're rolling this out to new groups of people uh, over the next couple of weeks. So every two weeks, we're going to be rolling out to a, a new cohort of people. So if you sign up on misu.app, that's M-I-S-U dot app, we'll... Uh, we'll send you a beta as soon as that cohort comes around. If you really want to use it and you're super excited about it, uh, you can shoot me an email at 
dan at misu.app and I'll, uh, I'll try to bump you ahead of the line. Mm, that's awesome. So something that comes to mind talking about your idea is that, you know, since you're building in this space, the mental health tech space, can you talk to me a little bit about that startup market and, and what does it look like? I mean, are there other people building in this space? Is it, is it very early? Can it just tell me you know, how you view the, the market for mental health tech startups? Yeah, I haven't been asked that question in some time. So this is, uh, this is largely off the cuff. I think that there's, there are apps that kind of mirror what tools we already have in place today. There are apps that make therapy more accessible, like the therapy marketplaces. That's like Reflect, that's Ginger.io. Um, there's a few others out there. Uh, I, I feel really bad for drawing a blank right now. Can you add? Stephen, can you add to the therapy marketplaces? Because I want to give them recognition. Yeah, I mean, there's Talkspace, there's super early stuff like uh, Bees, The Difference, that's using Alexa to do voice therapy. Um, there's there's a whole handful out there. I also can't list them all off the top of my head, but but I, I agree. There, there, there are yeah. many. So there's there's some on the, the therapy marketplaces, and I think they do a really good job in helping people um, get easier access to therapists. There are a number of challenges that those face, just like therapists face challenges. Uh, and But I've heard of a number of friends who have been able to use these services to um, overcome the challenge of finding a therapist, which is, it, it means a lot to me that these tools can help people near and dear to me and across America. There's tools that help with mood tracking. There are a lot of mood tracker, manual mood trackers out there, and there are also automated tools. So I think MindStrong is the other automated app that is a predictor of people's depression. They're taking more of the medical approach of saying, hey, this person is at risk of dealing with depression. Let's install this software onto their smartphone. It tracks them automatically and predicts when they're going to enter a depressive state. I think it's really important that we have a wide variety of tools out there. And then there's automated mood trackers, which I think there's going to be more of these coming out. We are one of them right now. But I'm frankly really excited to start seeing major platforms like Facebook, like Twitter, like Reddit, when they are able to measure how content impacts consumers' long-term well-being and start optimizing for that, especially when they have pressure from policy or even upcoming policy, those, I think, will have some of the largest impacts on people's well-being that we have seen over the past many decades. And just to give people, to kind of follow up on that, to give people a little bit of a sense of scope and scale, uh, like MindStrong specifically that he mentioned is a they've raised sixty million dollars to date. They raised a Series B in December of 2018 that was thirty million, well, thirty one million dollars, and that that business is it's not just a little early stage, you know, pre seed. It's a it's a huge business, and there are actually several huge businesses in this space that that are that are growing and raising a lot of money. And growing and raising a lot of money isn't exactly the answer all the time, but it's certainly a sign that there's some interest and that that things are kind of moving towards more rather than less awareness. And I think one of my questions, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is around people using these applications. It, I think it takes people becoming aware of their mental health, their emotional state, and or wanting to be aware of it, and then deciding to use 
these things and what what is going to be the public education component of that? Like how how are you going to get somebody who's never even considered mood tracking before to say, yeah, I should be doing that? Right now I'm I'm not going after those people. I there's 10% of the population today who want to track their mood. They want to become more emotionally aware. Mostly they don't do it because they like because of motivation, because of time, laziness, and sometimes even mental health issues get in their way. So when we, these are people that want these tools out here, that's 80 million people across developed nations want tools to help them track their emotional health that don't require any effort. And that's who we're building for. And really the way I look at this is let's build a product that people love. Let's build a product that people go to, not because they have a mental health struggle, but because they want to become more emotionally aware, they want to become healthier. Fitness trackers kind of hit that as well. People, most people don't buy a fitness tracker because they struggle with their physical health. They do it because they want to be healthier. They want to be more aware and that's a, there's hundreds of millions of people who have used these tools, uh, fitness trackers. And I see the emotion tracking becoming just as big of a market. And we have to build products that are just delightful. They love them. They're simple to use. And I, that's what's going to bring a lot of change. Yeah. I think they'll, the emotional, the mood trackers are going to be bigger than the fitness trackers because I think that mental health is something that people are becoming people are becoming aware that it sits on top of physical health that physical health is often an output of mental health and that if you want to really impact your physical well-being you're going to have to start with your mental well-being and i think that you know while the the physical fitness trackers can track my steps or how far I swam or what i did on a bicycle or or, or whatever else i may do you know I, sometimes i get in like a a rut where I run every day or I only walk every day or I don't do either. And I just, you know, go to a fitness class at the gym. So the tracker, I have to change trackers or I, the Fitbit doesn't work for that or, or whatever it may be. But there is no daily modality change when it comes to my mental health. I have emotions, I have emotional state and I have it 24 seven, 365. And so I think that there'll be a stickier, user base. I think there will be a bigger user base. I think that there is a stigma component. I think that it's not your problem to solve. I think it's a societal problem. I think it's a policy problem. I think it's a conversation. I think more celebrities, more founders, more politicians that talk about their mental health experiences, that every single time that happens, stigma decreases and people become more willing to address their own issues. So I think all of those things work together to, in my mind, make what I think is a much bigger market for you. How do you feel about that sort of positioning or that thought? I think you, you, you talked about that really well. It's a, there's, there are many factors at play here from policy, from leader executives, from celebrities, and, and that this is a growing market. Our emotional state is what matters. Like there's this trope of like happiness matters like could you help me out here what's it like happiness matters more than money maybe that's just what my parents have told me but i i think deep down that's what it looks like and to me an ideal world looks like where we align financial interests with improving people's well-being 
there are so many ways to make this happen. Actually, not that many ways, but there's government and then there's the financial sector. And I'm very bullish and excited to see this happen. And I think there's, there is a lot of upside to happen, both improving people's well-being and just generally being happier. And, and there is a lot of financial gain too. We're seeing more and more investors in this space, um, more and more startups and entrepreneurs. This is driven by a lot of advancements in devices, in machine learning, in consumer adoption, in consumer struggles. And so I'm really excited to have people like you who went, who used to work in a very general mental health or general venture capital fund, and now you're focused solely on this mental health space. So we've talked a little bit about mental health and we've talked about entrepreneurship. And I think you're aware and I'm aware that you know, st- statistics show that entrepreneurs are four, 50% more likely to have mental illness than the broader population, 10x more likely to be bipolar. And just kind of curious to get your thoughts on that research and, and why you think those numbers are. So I, I think this comes down largely to risk profiles. I think people generally with higher risk profiles are more likely to deal with less um, less stability in their life. It seems like it primarily comes around stability because if entrepreneurs were financially stable, that they knew things were going to be okay, and there was more balance in their life, then I don't think that those numbers would really be there, especially when entrepreneurs really tie their entire identity to this startup. Um, that usually brings a whole risk, uh, a, a whole set of risks to the table. So for me, I know when uh, when things are going great, I feel really good. I'm usually putting a lot of hours into work, but I, more recently, I've found a greater ability to keep balance, to keep building community, to to keep meditation, to keep physically active, uh, and these are a good safety net to keep these habits up, especially when things aren't going as well. And when things aren't going as well. Usually, and I'm, I, I still feel a little bit of shame in sharing this, but I don't work as much because I find when I do work a lot and my mood's low, or one, it's really hard for me to find the motivation to go there. Um, and two, I also feel like I'm really not productive, um, that I'm almost, uh, the, the definition of burning out in a car is you're spinning your wheels and you're not moving forward. And I look at the same thing as in entrepreneurship. Burnout comes from when you're doing a lot and your business is not progressing. So it's a lot easier for me to take more time off, put in a couple hours in during the day when things are really tough and really investing in my emotional health. That's It's been a long journey and it it has made the lows and the times of difficulty a lot easier to manage when I double down on my emotional health and I step back a little bit from, from work. Do you think that there's some responsibility on maybe investors or others in the startup ecosystem to help here? I mean, founders are taking money from other people and they're, they're building a business and they've got a lot of pressure to get things done by a certain amount, a certain time before certain metrics are reached or reach certain metrics by a certain place. And that pressure is pretty heavy on a daily basis. Is there, I mean, that could, that could really harm someone's emotional state. How how should investors and, and other, other interested folks in the ecosystem 
act or talk or what should they be doing to help here? I think there's a few things. There are a number of investors, including one of our institutional investors who committed to giving founders one hour of therapy, um, which is a start. It's better than 95% of the venture capitalists out there. What, what would be nice to see in a fund is to see some dedicated amount of that fund going towards the entrepreneurs. Um, this is outside of the money that the entrepreneurs um, have raised from those investors. It, that, that could be a nice thing. It seems a bit idealistic. Um, there are other investors, like um, I heard of Dave Morin on a podcast recently. He talked with um, Jason. I, I have a hard time pronouncing his last name. Could you help me out here? Jason Calacanis? Calacanis. Yeah. He, the two of them talked about how they support entrepreneurs, and sometimes they'll tell the entrepreneurs like to take care of their health and their family and pause the business or close the business and they'll invest in their next business when they want to um, but or w when they're ready to when the entrepreneur was ready to start a new one again so it's really cool to see entrepreneur investors saying look your health matters more and they're supporting the entrepreneurs through one of the most difficult decisions because there are a number of uh, there are suicides that happen out there because of this big stress and it's it's really difficult to talk to investors, people who put hundreds of thousands of dollars betting on you, betting their part of their careers on you. It's, it's hard to go to them and tell them, I did not achieve what you were hoping for me. So having the investors really help accept any outcome and really be there to support the entrepreneurs. I also think it's good branding for these investors. I'm curious from your perspective as a VC who wants didn't invest or think too much about mental health and now has done a complete 180. Um, what were your thoughts back then, if any, and what are your thoughts now on how to support entrepreneurs? I didn't have any thoughts on mental health back then. I mean, I was living in addiction and my brain wasn't going to allow me to think about mental health, mine or anyone else's. My brain was going to do what it could to get the next high, the next drink, the next episode of acting out. That my I had what's called addict brain. So we're, you were never going to see me think about that at all. Uh, when I became aware and when I got some sobriety and when I got some help, uh, it became the only thing I think about. I mean, not the only thing, but it became a, a primary topic for me. And, you know, in my fund, I haven't decided on an amount yet because I got to figure out how, much, how big the fund's going to be. But there will be management fee money dedicated to paying for mental health for treatment, whether that's you know therapy sessions or, or whatever, whatever is needed on a case by case basis. But for each of the founders in the portfolio, and I, I feel strongly that other investors should do the same. And I feel strongly that a lot of these so-called industry leaders who throw open bar parties for founders and investors to get together at startup week or startup weekend or whatever these events are, uh, that's garbage. That's destruction of intellectual property. That's killing people. And then they want to have codes of conduct and ethics that say, well, you can't act this way. You can't say this and you can't do that, but, but we'll ply you full of alcohol for free. I mean, that's just hypocritical. It's two-faced and it's garbage. And if 
I don't start seeing, you know, some of those accelerators spend some of that beer money on mental health for their cohort members, then I'm not going to take them seriously. That's a, a very strong stance. Yeah, that that's a very strong stance. I, at, on one front, those events can act like a sense of community building and can act a sense of connection and building friendships. I've built the best friendships, relationships. I have found the best community that I could possibly find in sobriety and in mental wellness with other people who seek the same things. So there are ways that tech stars and others can create opportunities for community building without plying people full of open bar alcohol. So as you go and build your, you raise this fund, you invest in 20 entrepreneurs, you, you raise fund two and fund three. What do you, what do you think you'll do differently in terms of building community and helping create this supportive sense for entrepreneurs, both um, emotionally and professionally? The most effective thing I've found that I can do is tell my story. My story helps people in a couple of ways. Number one, it helps people feel like they can share their story. And number two, the more stories that are out there, the more people feel like it's okay to get help. And the more we turn up the volume on this conversation, the more founders will step up and say, I'm not well, I can't work this week. I need to go to therapy. I may need to go to rehab and have my founder take over for 60 days, my co-founder take over for 60 days. And I think the most important thing I can do is encourage a, an environment for the founders I invest in and the founders that the founders that I'm associated with and the other investors that I work with in the community that that's okay. It's okay for someone to say, I just can't do it right now. And my co-founder will take over or I need a week off or I need whatever I need. Because if you're not doing okay, it is actually okay. And asking for help is the strongest thing you can do. And the culture we live in says that being, not, being in a bad place and asking for help is weak. And that's absolute garbage. And anybody that, that perpetuates that through the bro culture of Silicon Valley, through the Hey, I worked an all-nighter last night. I'm going to I'm going to praise the startup grind. Anybody that's promoting that language and that culture around startups and around starting businesses when they already know for certain because the data is there that there's more mental illness in this community than anywhere else, that's just short-sighted and it is unacceptable and it's those are not people that I want to do anything with in business because they're 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 hurting people. They're leading people to death, honestly. I mean, they are literally leading people towards misinformation and untimely death. You, this had just reminded me of a, of a story that happened that I think people might find entertaining at the very least, which was when we closed our first institutional money, when we got written, written commitment from these investors for the largest check that I've ever received, I was at a gathering with a bunch of friends and I shared with them this and they all like were getting really excited. And I told them, hold on one sec. 
I'm going to go take more lithium so I don't get too elevated. And that, that was the first thing that I did after receiving the largest check that I ever had was to take more lithium so I stay balanced and I, I, I have more stability in my life. I love it. And you took care of yourself. And what you did is you told a bunch of people that heard that, that it's okay to prioritize taking care of yourself. And that's what we have to do. If we can build community around the idea of taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other, instead of building community around having alcohol, drinking alcohol or you know, carrying on or doing whatever else it is, then we'd be in such a healthier place. I mean, if you think about what we were doing on this planet is we were humans and we were tribal, we were living in tribes together. We didn't have to have happy hours to get together and talk. We, we had community all day, every day. And now that We've created all these things that destroy community. We have to bring ourselves together over what substances? That can't make any sense to anybody who knows anything. Not in my opinion. Well, I I hope that you do invest in community uh, through means that aren't necessarily consuming substances, yet at the same time helping people emotionally and professionally. As you, as you grow your fund, as you grow this podcast. Yeah. One of the components of that is one of my central themes of the fund is I think that peer to peer mental health solutions are going to be the only way everyone can get help. There will never be enough psychiatrists. There will never be enough therapists. There will never be enough beds at rehab centers. You just can't make them fast enough. And the only way we're all going to get the help we need is through peer to peer resources. It's going to be through things like seven cups and AA and therapy. And there's going to, there's a whole host of peer to peer solutions coming to market that I think are going to be the, the core platform components of mental health care in the future. Well, look, I am grateful that you came on to do this and thank you for taking time. Thank you for sharing and being open and vulnerable. It's, I think it's more helpful to people than, than, you know. And thank you for coming on and telling us about your, your business. And I learned something, a couple things from you about the market and about, you know, what, what you're building. And I just am really, truly thankful that for your friendship and that you, you came on to, to do this today. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for, for putting this together and destigmatizing mental health and helping propagate new innovation in this space that's going to have a really high, high impact on others. And that's it for this episode of the Stigma Podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I am especially grateful to Dan for coming here and sharing about his experience, t- telling us more about his business and the mental health tech market that he's in. And for our listeners, if you'd like to connect with Dan, you can find him on Facebook, on his website, um, Twitter, social media, etc. And all of those links will be in the show notes. And if you like this episode, please feel free to share it on social media. And I'd also be really grateful if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the Stigma Podcast on iTunes um, or your podcast platform of choice. It helps our show a lot in the rankings and would be greatly appreciated. And if you have any comments or questions, we would love to hear from you. And you can connect with us on Twitter at StigmaCast. And you can find us on our website, StigmaPodcast.com. Please let us know your thoughts on the episode. Thank you for being here.